fitness is your ability to cope with and recover from stress. And stress is an inevitable factor in your life and in the lives of the people in your organization. A fit, healthy team is an energized, effective team, but it is not enough to just tell your people what to do, you need to show them. If you want your people to have a better quality of life and a more rewarding career, then it is vital that you lead from the front. Your choices, your behaviors are in the spotlight. My name's Jay Unwin, it's time to get fit to lead. Welcome back to Fit to Lead with me, Jay Unwin. Today, my guest is inclusion and belonging specialist, keynote speaker and podcaster, Joanne Lockwood, and we chat about finding the why behind your behavior change, representation in the fitness industry, and how business and HR leaders can help make fitness and well-being more accessible. Don't forget that on the first Wednesday of every month at 11am UK time, I run a free webinar called Level Up Your People. If you're interested in coming along, then you can head to fitbodyfitmind.online forward slash level up and get yourself registered. Hey, Joanne, how are you doing? Hi, good morning. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on, Joe. It's a lovely morning outside. Um, the sun is shining and we're getting some late September good weather. So yeah, everything's good in my world. It is It is lovely to have the sun shining, isn't it? It really is. I think that we've got to make the most of it now as well, haven't we? Because as uh, as we progress later into the year, I know it's going to be fewer and far, further between. I, yeah, I'm, I have some of these uh, smart light bulbs, which I program to come on at sunset. And so I can actually see the marked time where the light bulbs are turning on earlier and earlier in the evening. Oh, so wow. I, think I think they're coming on at sort of like seven o'clock in the evening now. So yeah, that won't be long before it's four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, night's drawing in. I believe I've probably been saying the nights are drawing in and it will soon be Christmas since the end of June though. So, uh, like, <laughs> you know, I should probably, I should probably pipe down about that. Um, Enough about the weather and enough about the early nights. Um, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to start off by asking you the, the same question I ask everyone at the beginning of these chats. And that is, what does fitness mean to you? Fitness, what does it mean to me? That's, that's a really good question. And no one would describe me as your stereotypical fit person. You know, I, most of my life, I've been significantly overweight. I've always drunk too much. I've smoked at times in my life and often spent periods of my life getting hot, sweaty and out of breath doing many things. So I am not the epitome of fitness. So what does it mean to me? Fitness. Fitness is my body's ability to do what I'd love to do. Um, whatever that may be, watch telly. Am I, am I able to watch telly? Am I able to go for a walk? Am I able to go shopping? Am I able to enjoy time with my family and my friends? So I suppose it's my body's ability to cash the check that I'm asking it to deliver. Um, having, you know, over the last couple of years, I've, I've had, I had, um, a gallstone issue and I ended up having my gallbladder removed and that reminded me of my body's limitations and when something goes wrong and the excruciating pain, the, the vomiting I was doing and it, it severely impacted my, my ability to work, to take part. And it was so unpredictable that I didn't, I couldn't trust my body to, to be on form when I needed it to be. And I, I was taking strong painkillers, et cetera, et cetera. And then I had the operation, I had my gallbladder removed and almost instantly I felt my body come back to me. Yeah, you know, I was no longer beholden to this randomness. Mm. 
And about 10, 15 years ago, I had uh, double pneumonia. And that's probably the first time in my life that I realized my mortality, if you like, that I yeah. realized that my body wasn't forever, my health wasn't forever, and that I needed to respect that I, I wasn't superhuman anymore. And uh, and that really, really knocked me because, you know, the double pneumonia, Christmas Day 2013, really hit me out of nowhere. And it took about six to eight weeks to recover from that. And the breathlessness, the, the, the inability to walk upstairs, that I really felt unwell, unfit. So that that those are kind of two major instances in my life where I've realized that fitness and we're not talking, as you say, we're not talking about gym buddy stuff here. We're not talking about uber fit. We're just talking about a level of fitness that allows me to interact in the world and have my life the way I want to, and my body's able to deliver what I need to do. So that, that's how I would talk about fitness. I think it's really, really interesting to hear because the more and more people that I speak to, I've been working in kind of the, the fitness arena, if you like, for, for nine years. And the more people that I speak to, I've spoken to hundreds, thousands of people about fitness. And the more I do it, the more I realize that that answer is pretty much across the board for 99% of people. And yet when fitness is sold, whether it's through the fitness industry, whether it's, you know, within corporate well-being and stuff like that, it's the, the view of it is much, much more narrow. Um, from a marketing perspective, you know, you always see the word fitness next to certain images and we start to conflate those two things. And, and so what you're talking about in terms of, dealing with those those everyday things being able to do the things you want to do and i found it interesting as well using that using that term you know cashing that check because i talk a lot about fitness being a currency that you can spend on other things it's not a, it's not an end in itself it's a it's a means to an end and the end itself is essentially quality of life it's it's being able to to just yeah, just enjoy, enjoy what you've got. And, and obviously maybe, you know, things like living a bit longer, but also in terms of quality years, not just years for the sake of it. Right. And, um, I mean, you're, you're obviously, um, someone who works a lot in kind of corporate spheres, you know, working with diversity and inclusion is your particular mission, isn't it? So with, with that, do you find that there's, um, when companies are looking for well-being provisions, which maybe you kind of come across in the work that you do, do they still have that kind of narrow view, or are they opening it up a little bit more to make it to make that well-being provision more inclusive? I certainly seen as a result of yeah the last eighteen twenty months the COVID that people are far more focused on well-being rather than necessarily calling it mental health, calling it employee experience, whatever it may be. It's that well-being, and I think fitness is goes beyond the physical. There's mental fitness. There's, we think about stress, anxiety, all of those hidden fitness criteria, if you like. So I think what we're seeing is far more awareness that it's, it's not just, you know, marathon running, not just yeah. gym, not just swimming. It's, it's across the board. And I think corporates are aware that giving people gym membership as a, as a, as a perk isn't the solution. It's, it's, it resonates with a, a small minority of the staff as a perk. The staff will probably have other other desires, or they, they want to cash that benefit in differently. Um, and it is. I mean, I, I think the other problem is when we think about DNI is that fitness, in, in the marketing sense, can be exclusionary. Yeah, very yeah, much. As you say, the imagery that's used, the clothing, um, the. the 
just the the shapewear, you know, so the, the leggings, the, the swimsuits, everything is are all designed around a certain body type. So you almost have to become uber fit to fit into the fitness yeah. products. Yeah. Um, and that, that leaves people who are maybe body conscious, embarking on wanting to become fitter, feeling left out, feeling that they cannot buy product that helps them feel good on that journey, if you like. And so, that, yeah, you end up... Uh, Having body images is very, very important for some people. Um, accessibility of clothing. You know, if I was, I, I'm a, a size 26, 28, it's very hard to find active wear clothing in my kind of size. Sure. I'm not saying it's not available. Uh, and of course, my body generates heat in a different way. So what, what, what might keep somebody warm who's a size 12, a size 10, will make me hot. Yeah. So the way my body breathes, the way I sweat, the way all these things. So the body characteristics are different. I don't, I don't think that's often taken into account when we're looking at fitness products. It's just scaling up um, smaller sizes to larger sizes. And as you say, the marketing, the resources are pumped into where, where the money is. It follows the money, doesn't it? It follows the, follows the wealth, follows the privilege. So again, we, we talk about exclusionary fitness accessibility. Does it work across the board? For people with different economic statuses, and uh, I think when we, I would, I would, I would guess that many people who are fit come from higher economic statuses, yeah. wealth. Uh, we know that people's lifestyles, their eating habits, their smoking and drinking habits, are far more healthy. The more wealthy and stable your relationships and your family life is, so again, we're creating this divide, aren't we? Where you're. But we're creating an environment where people who have less access to social capital tend to be less fit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in whatever that may, that may mean, not just in physical fitness, but in mental fitness, in breathing, and just in, inside fitness, if you like. Yeah, it is so true. And it is um, kind of more and more well-documented these days and a lot more kind of publicly uh, talked about, which is, you know, a step in the right direction that these things are are being discussed. Less about um, fitness being just a choice and just a, a kind of something that w- which you can choose to do because your behaviours at the end of the day are your own. Um because I'm all for personal responsibility, but it, it, like you've got to assess all the other factors that are at play as well. Of course, we have choices and stuff like that. But if people people still have to choose from what's available to them, the, and, and the choices that are available to one person aren't going to be available necessarily to the next person. And like you said, the, the, the kind of... The provisions often follow the money because obviously the, the, the nature of the society that we live in is, is capitalist and all the rest of it. And so all these companies are obviously trying to make sales. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, if you look at the fitness industry has only really been knocking about in its current incarnation really since the kind of eighties, that's when it became really a thing before that people were just a bit more active in their daily lives. Their work was more manual and menial and stuff like that. Everything's become a lot more automated. And so gyms and bodybuilding and aerobics and all of these things kind of started knocking about in the eighties. And, um, we, it's still very much a, like you said, it's, um, it's a certain type of person that's in all that marketing for it. And it's supposed to be aspirational, but it doesn't always have that effect. In fact, it rarely has that effect. 
It's not aspirational. It's it's it makes people feel like it's untouchable. It is. It It is. is. It goes beyond aspiration into supermodel into super muscles. Um, So what you do is you you don't see yourself represented. So it's not aspirational. It's beyond your capability. And I think what we need to do is create more things like park runs, which are for everybody, couch to five k type initiatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And also, I think that the, the uh, the, the food industry, when we're talking about diet products, yep. that whole pharma stuff, how we oscillate between high protein recommendations to low fat recommendations to consuming fast burn carbohydrates where uh, we, we get so much conflicting information. And because many young families live in a very demanding life there's not time to prepare meals often or that's the excuse so we end up just picking convenience foods microwave it put it in the oven without looking at the salt without looking at the fat and even though the the products are now labeled we're still not really looking at what we're buying we're just going oh that tastes nice i'll have another one of those please not not considering the impact of that yeah, and the thing with uh, you know it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle in a lot of ways because the the less well that you feel in yourself, the usually the choices that you make are going to be different than if you feel you know full of life. And so if you're feeling good, we often we often make better choices in that kind of state. If we're mm. already feeling stressed and depressed and worried and anxious and uh, like we haven't got enough time, then we're going to make different choices. And and those choices are going to lead to perhaps feeling like you've got even less energy and so on and so forth. Mm. And it's about being able to break down that first step because like you said, the, a lot of the fitness industry and this crosses over into the kind of corporate sphere and, and, and people leaders in companies who are buying in wellness provisions or anything like that or perks, like you said about gym memberships, they're, they're, they're basing that on what they see in the fitness um, industry. And so where a company could be a beacon of uh, inclusive well-being, they're just playing the same game. And so they're buying stuff in which already appeal. You know, you said it appeals to a very small number of people like that gym membership, for example. Let's say a company provides a, a, a gym membership either for free or subsidized. That's going to appeal to people who already like the gym. That's going to appeal to people who, who, who are already fit in, you know, mm. air quotes, um, the traditional image of fit, let's say, um, because they feel comfortable with that. It's their domain. They already love that. They're like, brilliant. I had a gym membership anyway, but now I can get one for free. The people who need the support more are getting kind of left by the wayside again. And I think some of it is because we still see fitness as being such a narrow thing and it is very much about the physical and it is about lifting weights the gym running marathons etc etc and they haven't included like what you said about the mental well-being and the kind of i mean if you look at if you look at um if you look at corporate environments if you if you're not paying your staff well if your staff don't feel valued if they haven't got um you know working hours that that suit their needs if they haven't if they don't feel included um in that way then it doesn't matter how many gym memberships you give them they're not going to ever become well because you haven't met their fundamental needs right oh completely and i i i go back to a conversation i have with my gp probably about a year ago and he, he I was sort of talking to him about losing some weight and he he basically said, don't get any anxiety. Don't beat yourself up about it. The human body wasn't designed to lose weight. 
The human body was designed to eat and store energy between meals because we would we were evolved into environments where we didn't eat regularly as we do now. We ate when we could. Yeah. Uh, and also, the human body wasn't designed to be a gym buddy. It was designed to conserve energy. Yes. So, so why would we waste hard-earned energy that we'd fought and, and caught in our prehistoric times? We, we want to conserve. We want to be more. We want to be lazy between those bouts of energy of ex- expenditure. So we. I, I don't think prehistoric man was running around doing weights to keep fit. No. It was just a byproduct. So. We've invented this fitness industry and methodology and ethos to push the human body into something it wasn't really designed for, which is why most of the friends I know who are fitness freaks have had more knee replacement, hip replacements, and muscle strains than I've ever liked to have uh, because we're pushing the human body beyond its design capability. And I'm not saying that's an excuse not to be fit. I'm not saying that at all. But it's it's like any life choice, isn't it? We 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 want to we want to use our body how we want to use it. And I realised that I don't want to go to the gym because I have to, or it's that produces the endorphins that give me that rush. It's a you know it's a gym drug if you like. I want to go to the gym because I I actually enjoy it. I want to go swimming because yeah. I enjoy a swim. But I'd like to do that once or twice a month, three times a month because it's fun. Yeah. Not because I'm going to go and hit 50 lengths or 100 lengths. So I think, again, I, I have that kind of pressure to feel that I've got to conform. I've got to, if I'm joining the gym, I've got to go all the time. I've got to get my money's worth. You know, you know the stats. I, you know, organizations like David Lloyd or whatever, if everybody who had a gym membership turned up, they'd be really in trouble. Oh, yeah. They, they yeah. oversell capacity. So they know that people join and, and don't come. Yeah, I believe it's about 80% of the members aren't regular attendees. And it's, mm. it's the only thing which keeps, it's, it, to be honest, that's why a lot of gym memberships can be such a reasonable price these days, especially for kind of big box gyms like that. Um, less so when it's kind of lead sessions and, and things, uh, because obviously they have got a capacity. But yeah, if you've, if you're selling a membership to something and you know that 80% of people aren't going to use it, you can sell five times the number of memberships than you can actually maintain physically. And, and, you know, what a, what a fantastic business model. But the, mm. you, you've got to, you've got to wonder, haven't you? Like, if you were selling something that 80% of the people who bought it weren't using, you'd, you'd kind of question what you were selling, wouldn't yeah. you? Surely. I think the biggest challenge, you know, in terms of fitness, whether that's eating healthy advice, is the sustainability of it. Yeah. And it's very easy sometimes to start, but the fatigue sets in, the habit sets in, and something knocks you off the boat, if you like. It's getting back on, getting back on. And it's the sustainability and long-term ability to keep that level of fitness. I mean, I've, I've lost eight stone in my life twice. Yeah. and put it on so therefore I put it on three times I've, I've lost it once put it back on lost it once put it back on and I'm back on again yeah. so I know how to lose weight I know how to stick to a diet I know how to stick to a, a regime I know how to go walking I know how to do all that what I haven't figured out is how to stay with it how yeah. to keep in that zone and you know that, that plus or minus five percent zone yeah um what I end up doing is, is is losing it and suddenly I'm 25% over 30% over and all of a sudden I'm on this upward curve that I, I don't know how to stop without going back onto the original crackdown and that's I want to find a way of living my life where it's sustainable without it being conscious if you like 
And that, that's, I suppose that's what everybody wants. I think that is the, that's the holy grail, isn't it? I mean, it is, and, yeah. and I think that it's a combination of things because I mean, some of the some of the points you've mentioned. One of the one of the things was about the um, uh, the evolutionary uh, kind of progress, how the human body is developed, and the fact it hasn't devo- developed to lose weight. It has categorically developed to gain weight because it is a survival mechanism um and also on the on the note of you know not you know our prehistoric ancestors not running about and lifting weights and stuff we're the only species of animal on the planet who don't um who don't seek out idleness because if you look at if you look at any i mean if we just look at mammals for for a start and you look at lions and you look at you look at our closest relatives and you look at the primates you know chimpanzees and gorillas and stuff like that they when they aren't eating when they aren't um you know fighting over territory when they aren't reproducing when they aren't doing all of these things which are um you know the the kind of key things because everything for them is about survival of course um they're resting they're doing very little and and you see this in pretty much every species apart from humans because humans when they do that they go I should be doing something and we've, we've, we've become so neurotic about it um, because we've been told you know the devil makes work for idle hands and we've been fed these lines for all this time which is just going if you're not doing something you're lazy you need to always be doing something and this idea of laziness is an absolute it's absolute bollocks to be honest because the the it's it's a necessary part of life. You can't constantly be doing stuff. Whether it's physical or not, you're going to burn out eventually. Like all the people you know who've had, you know, knee injuries and replacements and things like this because of overuse, wear and tear. And the same thing happens to us mentally and emotionally. You know, we get wear and tear from doing too much constantly and being always on the go. And so that that idleness, that ability to just go, you know what? I don't need to constantly be on the move. That's a big part of our well-being because that's how we've evolved. We've evolved to do bursts of activity and then rest. Not bursts of activity and then go to work and do more activity. That's not how things... That's not... Our lifestyle has evolved a lot faster than our bodies and minds have. And so we've got to... It's not saying, like you said, it's not about using that as an excuse not to keep ourselves well because, of course, I mean... If someone doesn't want to keep themselves well, that's cool as well. I mean, you know, I'm doesn't it, it's not something that I would I would say everyone has to do. It's your body at the end of the day, but yeah, it's not saying that if you want to keep uh, keep yourself well, doing activity isn't a good thing. But it's to say that be aware of what your body and what your mind have kind of evolved to do, and factor that in at least, and and look at the bigger picture rather than just um, you know buying into what you've been sold i mean you mentioned you mentioned about weight loss in particular because this is this is something which when you talk to people about their health well-being fitness everything like that this is usually something which comes up because we're constantly told it's like oh you know there's an epidemic obesity epidemic and this that and the other but it's still only one tiny factor in terms of your overall health there is more to health than just your weight and there are and, and something which i've experienced over the last kind of um near decade of, of, of doing this stuff is that the people who sustain their weight loss in the way that you're saying you'd love to achieve and in the way that most people would love to achieve are in fact the people that move their attention away from weight loss and start focusing on other things and they start focusing on things like what do i enjoy doing like you said about going swimming 
if I enjoy that and I go and do it, I'm more likely to stick to it. What kind of foods nourish my body and make me feel good and give me energy and don't bloat me and all of this stuff? And if people make these kind of gradual changes around their lifestyle in terms of things they like doing, because mm. nobody likes dieting, nobody Nobody has ever been like, I really love this diet. Nobody, not even a bodybuilder, right? They hate it. They complain about it, but they kind of relish that pain. Um, and, and so I think that is, that is a big key is moving our attention away from this kind of weight loss thing, which is so easily sold to us as being, again, aspirational. Move away from that and just go, actually, what do I want? Not what does society want? Yeah. And I think there's a whole lot to be said about self-worth self-being self-belief there's all tied up in body image and when we talk about inclusion when we talk about you know, creating this belongingness culture in society and the workplace that i want to feel good about myself and if i'm constantly being bombarded with images that are beyond aspiration um i start to get my mental health will suffer i feel more anxious about it i feel I can't live up to societal expectations of beauty, if you like. And I yeah. think that's part of the pressure we face. We, we're putting Snapchat filters, Instagram filters on to slim ourselves down, to create this, this, this online vision of ourselves whilst we're hiding with a big mug of cocoa and a bag of crisps on the sofa, um, wishing we were slimmer like the person on telly. So I, I think we need to see more representation of different body shapes in the media, in advertising, in on models, in shops, whatever it may be. Because, um, yeah, I said, I'm, I'm quite happy to admit I'm a plus-size girl. And even if I go to the on plus-size shopping sites, most of the models are lower end of plus-size. They're yeah, 16s, yeah. 18s. I want to see more realistic plus-size models. I mean, there's products like Snag Tights who have fuller figure more representative models of, the, of their clothing. And I think that creates a better image about what you're looking for and you think actually. But the, I think the industry is sort of saying, well, if it's okay to be big, then there's, we can't sell small. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's maybe, that, maybe that's what it is. If, yeah. it's, if we say that being big is okay, then then we're losing some of our market. And I, and I think maybe that's what we need to look at is question what we're being sold, how yeah. we're being sold it. And I've, I've got a friend who who runs a, a club for, she calls it Fat Girl Running. Okay. So it's all about not having to be skinny to run. Yep. It's not, you can, you can do a marathon and take 10 hours. It's okay. Yep. You don't have to do a marathon in three hours. You can do it in your speed. If you want to take two days, take two days. Uh, and I think it's creating that realistic expectation for, for what works for you, not creating this one size marketing model that makes you feel guilt. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe there is that fear, isn't there, within the industry? It's interesting that you said that then. That's, that was a real light bulb moment for me when you said that, um, you know, perhaps that's what they're scared of because what, what are they going to sell you? But the, the fascinating thing to me is when you actually look at, it's almost like they're ignoring the kind of, the reality of the human condition and, and, and psychology. Because when, when you, shame people either deliberately or uh, kind of indirectly for the way they look um, or for their health that doesn't make them want to change 
the way they look or their health. It makes them just feel miserable. And when we're miserable, we don't feel motivated. And so what what people are doing, I mean, I still see it now on Instagram. Instagram is obviously one of the biggest platforms in terms of like the fitness industry and stuff like that. And you see it on there where where people are in the comments of, of influencers um, in the fitness industry. And they're saying things like, well, like fat shaming is a good thing because it makes people want to change. And you just think, no, it doesn't. Right, two things. One, stop trying to change other people. (laughs) And two, if you want to support someone, let's say someone is genuinely um, means a lot to you. It's not some stranger on the internet and you want to help and support them to um, improve their health because you know they want to, not because you want them to. They want to. You want to support them. They're not sure where to start. You probably wouldn't start by insulting them and making them feel insecure. And yet on the internet, this becomes like quite a rife thing. And and it's just like that doesn't work. And it's the same thing with um with providing facilities, clothing, and the rest of it. Because that's like an indirect um kind of exclusion, isn't it? Because it's just going rather than saying, rather than saying overtly, this isn't for you, you're you're saying it by not providing something and then those people go well if i can't buy clothes to exercise in then i'm not going to go and exercise because it's not for me and the fat girl running thing i I love that concept because i've spoken to so many people in the past who are like oh when i lose a bit of weight then i'll start doing some exercise and 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 it's from self-consciousness and you just think that's like the way we've been conditioned by society to feel that way is all kinds of wrong Mm. Well, I learned over my couple of bouts of dieting that you don't exercise to lose weight. What you do is you, you lose weight and then you feel more active. So you want to do exercise. It's yeah. almost like the reverse psychology. And I, I wanted to walk more and do more things because I felt fitter. I didn't sweat. Yeah. My clothes fit better and I felt more spring in my step. But I didn't lose weight to get fit, I, I lost weight and then felt fit. Yeah. So yeah. it's almost like a reverse psychology. And I think the other thing, the trouble with these, the, the body perfect, for want of a better way, influencers, is we only see the outside. We don't see the inside of that person. We don't know what else is going on in their life, their own mental health, their own challenges, their own pressures they're putting upon themselves, uh, their own diet, their own pushing their body to the limits. Just because someone looks fantastic by their standard doesn't mean to say that everything is good on the inside. And I think being happy and and unfit for me is a better status than being uber fit and unhappy. And I'm not saying everybody who is fit is unhappy, but what we don't, what we do, what we do as a society, we create these judgments on external appearance, how tall you are, how short you are, your BMI shaming, all these kind of things we're doing. Um, boob sweat, you know, <laughs> belly sweat, wherever we, wherever we generate. And we're almost like, ooh, that's, we're creating this disgusted view of the world for people who don't conform to this, this beauty model. So I think we've got to be able to see beyond the skin, beyond the carcass and into how happy people are in true life. And if, if being fit and active makes you happy, fantastic. But let's not assume that everybody who's fit and active is happy. Yeah, there's more factors in their life. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And I think that I think that the um, 
it is funny how we kind of make these assumptions, especially based on people that we don't even know as well. If we're just looking at kind of imagery, then of course they're being, they're, they're posing, looking happy and all the rest of it. And, you know, you mentioned right at the start about fitness being your ability to do the things you want to do. Now, part of that is going to be your emotional state. Because if you want to go and do certain things, it, it's a requirement that you have a not be kind of joyful all the time, but a kind of base level of, of happiness and contentment puts you in a good state for doing these things. And so if you're doing something which makes you miserable, um, even if you're getting physically fitter, if you're becoming emotionally less fit in the process, then you're just trading one thing for another. And this is... It's interesting how most people, when they say they want to lose weight or they want to get fitter or they want to do this, they want to do that, it's because they want to be happier. That's the crux of it. They want to feel happier. And yet they do things which make them miserable in the pursuit of this this goal that they think is going to make them happy. But if they're making themselves miserable in the process, then is it really the right way of doing it? No, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm you know, I'm no kind of, uh, I don't think that's, that um, doing difficult things is a bad thing. But you've you've got to you know you've got to consider whether it is the right thing or not if it's really making people that unhappy. Um, I did want to touch on another thing you were talk when we were talking about kind of inclusion and diversity and representation. I think was the word really which came up, wasn't it? Representation, not just in um, kind of the fitness industry directly, but but in advertising for related industries as well. Do you think that that's something that's improving do you think it's improving enough do you think it needs a bit of a kick up the arse like what, what's your what's your position on how how that's changing in terms of representation in the media i think there's a lot of talking a lot of performative type statements i don't see a lot of evidence right we talk about more plus size models we talk about um the window dummy being more representative of, of, of a typical shape but they're still size zeros. In fact, they're more Barbie dimensions. A lot of the, a lot of the models. The the male torsos are very ripped because that again is selling aspiration. And I, I don't see in Hollywood, in movies, in cartoons, I don't see above average BMI people being portrayed as good guys. Yeah, you know, right. It's always. It, Low, uh, you know, poor BMI, being overweight, is always associated with the the negative side of the characters. It's yeah. the the evil, the baddie, or it's the um, or it's the the comic relief, isn't it? That's the yeah. other thing. It's it's mm. one or the other. It seems it's never the it's or it's very very rarely the like you said the hero of the story. Mm. And I think you know I, I don't know what the the typical body size is in the UK right now, but I'm guessing you know. Most people have above average BMI, uh, a BMI of 30, I think is considered overweight or obese, but typical. So right. we need, maybe we need to readjust how we portray the world to make it more aspirational or, or, or achievable for people. Because what I don't want to see is people constantly feeling this pressure to conform. Um, and when we think about people with disabilities, people who have different capabilities, you can't. You want to be able to compete and conform to society, but you can't. You're playing with an unlevel playing field. And I think I realised when I was losing weight is that there's two there's two tasks or two milestones in losing weight. One is arresting weight gain. That's the first objective. Stop putting weight on. The second is decreasing the weight from that stop. And I think what we try and do is we try and do this U-turn right. on the sixpence. We start. We go from over-consuming. 
to under-consuming in a day. So there's not enough support to halting and and creating sustainment. So rather than saying, you need to start losing weight like this, say, you need to stop putting on weight. So let's 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 stabilize your calorie intake. Let's stabilize a level of fitness that you can achieve. Let's stabilize a level of exercise you can achieve and become comfortable with being static. Because we, we always want to go from, as I say, from, from high weight gain to weight loss now. And that that's we haven't retrained the brain into how because I, one of the things reasons I put weight back on is I didn't know how to be stable. I knew how to lose weight, I knew how to gain weight. But I didn't know how to be sustained weight. Yeah, I never learned that. So I was either losing or I was gaining. Not much focus understand. is put on that, is it really? No, and no. that's what that's the problem I've learned in the two the two times I've done it, and I'm 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 definitely going to do it again. But my focus is on learning how to sustain it and look at the triggers for overeating or overconsuming, and learn how my body does that. And I. Th- and I, one <laughs> sounds like a strange lesson. I, what I realised was a good indicator is when your clothes don't fit. And I didn't, I never picked up on this. I, I, and what I ended up doing is buying bigger clothes. So I think I, I've learned that if I do lose weight, if I do get my body to the size I want it is, I need to have a zero tolerance on buying bigger clothes. Right. That that was the trigger. I allowed myself to, to drift away so learning how to be stable is more important to me than learning how to lose weight right now yeah yeah it's it and this is the key thing as well and the the, i I think that it is a very personal all of this is very personal and so um there will be people who are quite happy to continue gaining weight cool their body crack Mm. on um there'll be people who are quite happy to maintain the weight they're at cool crack on and then there will be people who want to lose weight Again, cool, crack on. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because I sometimes see that there's a bit of, um, there's, there's, there's definitely more shaming in one direction than the other. There's definitely, cause it's, it's a kind of societal systemic issue when it comes to people gaining weight and, um, and people who are uh, technically overweight or obese. They definitely face more of that kind of, um, discrimination and stuff but if you're if you're a bigger person and you decide you do want to lose weight i've seen backlash for that as well it's it's much 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 less like so much less but it's interesting how some people who are saying you know it's your body don't you know don't put yourself through it just because society wants you to do x or y and then someone else goes yeah it's my body and this is what i want to do it's almost like there's a knee jerk in the other way and I, i get it because there's again it's it almost feels like um unconsciously it could be uh it could be felt like an attack saying well you you look like me but you don't want to and therefore i'm going to take that as as a bit of an insult um but really we just need to separate other people's choices from our own kind of values Mm. and stuff like that because at the end of the day it really is an individual choice and you know you're talking about um uh that kind of maintenance and also actually on, on that note the the idea of um if people do want to lose weight whether it is for aesthetic reasons whether it's for health reasons because there are obviously health um considerations at, above a certain point interestingly people who have got a bmi which is considered overweight but not obese Interestingly, there are some studies starting to show that the um, that longevity 
and uh, quality of life is actually better with a slightly higher BMI than it is if you've got a healthy BMI. And again, BMI is a limited kind of uh, measure anyway, but it's mm. just it's just fascinating to me that this stuff kind of comes out a bit more and it goes, okay, well, like if if that's the case, if there aren't any if there aren't any particularly overt health issues with being a BMI of 27, 28, for example, then why do I need to be a BMI of 21, 22? Like it's that thing about um tempering those aspirational goals and going, well, my aspirational goals are no longer the people I see on billboards and in movies, but they're my own and they're where I want to feel comfortable and they're about my quality of life rather than looking like um, someone from one of the Marvel movies, for example. It, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I, if, if, <laughs> if I could, I'd love to look like a superhero, but the, these people are paid to look a certain way. That's their whole career is based around an image. They've got... Th- you know, millions and millions of dollars are being spent on them looking a certain way. They've got trainers, they're in the gym all the time. They've, you know, got nutrition coaches and they've got, they're doing all kinds of different stuff. Some of them probably have even got some kind of, um, you know, chemical help, let's say. Um, cool, fine, if that's your job. But if you ha- if that's not your job, if that is not your entire existence, you've got a full-time job, you've got a family, you've got this, that, and the other. Your 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 accessibility to um or your access to these to these kinds of things are not the same as these people. And so that kind of comparison that we do is 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 not helpful. It's not helpful at no. all. I mean, we're all human and we all do it, but we just need to be aware that that's it's a false equivalence. Yeah, um just Maybe bringing us back to a DNI lens, if you like. Mm. Uh, having having lived life with a BMI of sub thirty for a few years, having had a BMI of forty ish, and I'm back to a BMI of forty ish. I I noticed the difference when I was thinner in the way people treated me in the world. Wow. I was seen. I suddenly found relationships were were. There seemed to be more trust and respect in me. There seemed to be a greater level of, maybe it's maybe it was my own confidence, but I, I just felt that interactions I had with the world, I was doing in, in a sales type role. I just found that people treated me differently, and I couldn't figure it out. I noticed that people started sitting next to me in waiting rooms or on buses because they, whereas when I was larger, maybe I was sweatier, smellier, whatever it may be, I don't know. But there was, I always felt that people sat further away from me when I was large. Yeah. Um, and it was these subtle things. It wasn't until I started, started thinking, well, that was an unusual experience. Oh, I just noticed that. It, it was almost like observational after the event. So I think we do treat people with high BMI as less intelligent, less capable, more lazy, and I, and I think that is a, is a reality. And I, I, and I think when we're talking from corporate point of view and, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to fix people's BMI rather than fix the perception of that person's BMI. Yeah. Um, and trying to create, trying to create acceptance of that person. And again, I said it earlier, it's, it's assuming someone who is a low BMI has, has their shit together. Yeah. versus someone who has a high BMI as, as being lazy and not got their shit together um, it's the perception and what we need to do is work on people's perceptions of people and seeing into their heart and soul rather than just looking at the, the superficial packaging and that, that's some of the, the struggle but 
I think when we go, I always say this when we talk to DNI audiences about trying to find the why. I need to find why it matters to me to have the level of fitness I want. Yeah. What's going to inspire me to maybe lose some weight, be more active? And there, there, there are certain things. I, I know that I haven't, I haven't flown in an aircraft for two years-ish. I know that my my ass won't fit in the seat anymore. Oh, I won't get the seatbelt on. So that's, a, that's an incentive to me. This, my level of fitness won't allow me to do what I want to do. Yeah. And that is sit in an aircraft and feel comfortable. I want to be able to sit in a restaurant and then the table doesn't wedge itself into my belly. Yeah. I want to be able to do that. So there's some clear things. When I said right at the beginning, my level of fitness, my level of my size doesn't allow me to, to interact with society in the way I want to do. And so my body is becoming a limitation to me. So I know that I have to do a change if I want to interact with the world the way I want to interact with it. And that's not about being thin. It's not about being – it's a specific reasons that make me unhappy – and it's about fitting into into gaps <laughs> because the world's designed tables and chairs and, and airline seats around a size 14, yeah. not around a size 24. And yeah. I think I've got to, I've, in order for me to fit into the world, I've got to, I've got to fit into the size the world expects me to be. And I'm not saying it's wrong or right. And that's the reality of the world. And yeah. it'll make me happy if I can, if I can interact and fit <laughs> into spaces that I want to fit into. It's it's fascinating because, like you said, the 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 world is set up a certain way, and uh, one of the things I kind of like that you drew out there was it doesn't. It, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, because we of, we often get hung up on um, injustices, and I think that it's important to recognise injustices and it's important to fight injustices, but it's it's it takes a lot of time. Um, and even if there's a huge groundswell of support for a particular cause, it still takes a lot of time for that to kind of really take hold from a, on a societal level uh, in the legislation and so on and so forth. Um, and so it's almost like you can fight the injustice while going right. It's, it may not change within the next few years. So I, I want and I want to be able to enjoy my next few years as well. So it's, it's not, you don't have to pick one or the other in a way, do you? You have, you can go, right, I'm going to, I'm going to use my voice for this. Um, but I'm also going to do this at the same time. Um, when you were talking about the perception of when you were in a larger body, the, there was a study that I saw recently, and it wasn't a huge study, but it was just a really interesting kind of uh, point being made where they showed a photo of a uh, a man, I believe it was a man, who was probably about 300 pounds in weight. Um, so just over, so probably what, 22 stone maybe, I think. My maths isn't very good. Um, but yeah, he was 300 pounds. And they said, "What? how would you describe this person? And uh, they basically were given a list of words to choose from. And the words that were chosen to describe this man were things like lazy. That was the, that was the one which came, came out the most. And it was like, um, it was a really high percentage. It was, I, I want to say like in the 80s, but it, it was a very high percentage of people who thought this man was lazy. They'd never met the man. They had no idea who it was. And they were basing that solely off his appearance. Uh, and off his size. Now they they showed the same image to other people and said, "This man's lost hundred pounds. This is where he's at at the moment." It's exactly the same photo, 
but the perception changed because they'd been told that he was £400, but now he's £300. And the perception of that changed completely. Amazing, uh, brave, strong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well done. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. But it just proves the point that we don't know the stuff that someone's gone through. We don't know the backstory. Yeah. We're making these snap judgments. And again, from an evolutionary perspective, it's a, it's a survival thing. We make judgments because it allowed us to survive in the past. These days, less so, especially in, you know... Um, relatively safe countries like the UK where we're not living in a war zone and someone's not coming to take our stuff or kill us or anything like that at least not in not in the same way and not in the, to the same degree that it is in other countries of course it's not 100% safe um but we don't have to worry about those things as much as we did um you know 10,000 years ago but we've still got that mechanism wired into our brain that we make snap judgments of people so I think the thing that can really help is rather than beating ourselves up uh, when we do judge people or beating ourselves up for getting it wrong is to understand that the first judgment we make is probably our kind of primal instinct and is likely to be wrong. And then our secondary, more rational thing, where it's a few seconds later where we assess and go, actually, that's that's probably not an accurate perception. It's probably not an accurate um, understanding of this particular person or this particular circumstance. And then we can spend a, even just a couple of seconds because it, it happens pretty quick uh, once we've kind of trained ourselves to do it. But then our second, um, our second thought about that person is more accurate because we've allowed our rational brain to kick in and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, Take it from here into here. Exactly. Our brain kicks in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I completely get that. Yeah, completely. And I think that the, the biases come out first. And they it's do. The, the conscious inclusion we've got to bring ourselves towards. Yeah. That gives us a, a balanced, objective, rational view rather than a instant perception. You know, perceptions are there to keep us alive. You know, if it's got big teeth, it runs at us. We run away. We climb a tree. We hide behind a door. Yeah. So biases there are very useful. But yeah, we're constantly of evaluating and judging people around us as to whether they make a good mate, whether there's a risk, whether they're safe, whether they're going to add value to our lives, detract from our lives, etc. So, yeah. And yes, that's all very well and good when you're living in, in a dangerous environment. You've got to make those quick decisions. But when we're living in a relatively safe society, as you say, we need to be able to stop and question, why do I think that? Yeah. And often it's from our upbringing and from... Not necessarily, like, well, yeah, from past experiences, but also other people's experiences who've then told us, oh, you, you people like this are lazy. You can't trust people like this. These kind of people do this, that, and that. you know, it's, there's, there's all kinds of, all kinds of these, um, these value judgments that we inherit as well from the people around us, from our parents, from our schooling and all of that kind of stuff. And yeah, it is, I think something which has really helped me become less, judgmental and more uh, open-minded and understanding of other people is to be more understanding of myself and to go, well, you know what? I am going to get it wrong a lot of the time, but that's okay. And also, you know, because that's part of the learning process, right? Um, and also those judgments that I make straight away don't make me a bad person. That's just my conditioning. Um if I hold on to those and I act on them without 
you know kind of processing it a bit more consciously then that that's starting to get into dodgy territory but i used to really find it upsetting that i would have these snap judgments and i would think that i was a terrible person for it and once i started going yeah. actually it's not that's not my fault then i started being able to process it better and become a much what i believe is a much better person still got a long way to go believe me <laughs> no, but i i think what we're going to try and say to ourselves is, I will always have biases. I'll always have blind spots. I'll always make judgments about people. It's what I it's what I do with that. Yes, that is the important thing. And I, I mean, I, I always consider myself as emotionally and culturally sensitive as I can be. But I still see someone and go, "Oh, they look a bit funny." Yeah. And then what I try and do is, when I have those thoughts, is say to myself, another voice kicks and says, "Why do I think that?" Yeah. Why is that kind? Why am I judging that person? What am I really trying to do here? Is it helpful to the situation to have that view? Yeah. So I almost like do a self debrief on on those thoughts, and as I say, it doesn't make me a bad person. It just makes me honest that I'm being that I'm prepared to tell people that I do that because if I if I kidded everybody that I didn't do it, then that that makes me kind of a, a superhuman, and I don't think people can be superhuman it's, it's impossible i think to to not have those views and perceptions about people yeah nobody's perfect and you know nothing's no. black or white is it it's like there's there's so much nuance and so much subtlety and that's something that we've hmm. you know we seem to have lost over time is this understanding of of uh, subtlety and nuance and everything's become so polarized and so opinionated i mean obviously we talk about opinions and stuff like that it's great to have strong opinions on on hmm. topics which are important but people become very attached to those opinions that becomes part of their identity oh, and when it becomes challenged they they feel like it's a personal attack uh, one of the things that you mentioned then about the uh, the self debrief i've got two daughters and one of the things and i find myself doing things which are uh, or, or saying something which i've said before really processing it about someone and so what i try and do is i try and do that kind of self debrief as you as you said it but i do it verbally i do it out loud in front of my girls because if they've seen me say or do something which is uh, judgmental or biased or somehow something that i didn't really want to do um, but it was just a snap thing. I then want to see, I, I want them to see me processing that and going, mm. actually, because I, I don't, I know that they're going to grow up with biases off the back of my, the way that me and my wife have brought them up. Of course they are. Um, most of these biases we're unaware of, but I want them to understand that we can question those as we go along. And sometimes I'm like, God, I really shouldn't have said that in front of them. And the only way back from that is to go, actually, why am I doing that? That's not okay because I want them to see me processing it as well so that they know that that's an option. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the important learning outcome, isn't it? It's it's the debrief. It's the understanding of why you think something because you can't correct or modify behavior unless you become, unless you become aware of that behavior. Yeah. I think that's the, the important thing and yeah. I think for people in leadership roles as well, that can be really vital because I think the spotlights on them even more. Like, you know, if you're, if you're heading up a company of even a few hundred people, it doesn't have to be thousands, but a few hundred people, you've got a duty of care, you've got responsibility, you've got a, a huge mm. spotlight on you. And these people in leadership positions feel petrified of getting it wrong. Uh, you know, they'll be like, Oh God, you know, if I say the wrong thing or I use the wrong pronoun or I, this happens or that happens, um, you know, I'm going to get kicked out. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get you know it's this this fear of what people are calling cancel culture and stuff like that which is a whole other conversation of course mm. um <laughs> we're gonna wrap up soon and we can't go down that rabbit hole um but no. but people are people are afraid of making mistakes aren't they 
and that's completely true. I mean, when I was, one of the things when I say when, when we're talking about in DNI space is one of the biggest barriers to inclusion is the fear of saying or doing the wrong thing because you're so afraid of upsetting someone, so afraid of making the wrong remark. You're so aware that every culture has its own language and that you're not part of that culture. So what if you get it wrong? So yeah, it becomes a barrier. And then the trouble is when you're, have that fear or apprehension of, of engaging with somebody, your body language change, your mannerisms change, the way you talk changes. And people could detect those micro changes. And then they feel more excluded because you're not prepared to, you're, cause you're awkward around them. Why are you awkward around me? What, what, what have I done? Yeah. Um, so it's really, really important to work on your cultural emotional intelligence and develop people skills. And I, and I'm not trying to be exclusionary here for people who I know maybe on the autistic spectrum uh, um, of different ways of thinking that not everybody has emotional logic or emotional thinking yeah. in their head. But where we do, where people do have that, it's about being sensitive and learning how to communicate in a, in a way that meets the needs of the person you're communicating with. You know? Yeah. I will say that, you know, we both, in a communication, we both have responsibility to make the communication work. Yeah, if I street. detect, yeah, if I detect that you're uncomfortable, then I need to adapt my style. If I'm uncomfortable talking to you, then I need to think about why I, why am I uncomfortable? How can we have a conversation? What, what, what conversation will we start with that gives us both a, an easy in to, to talking? We don't necessarily need to talk about the elephant in the room. We don't need to necessarily talk about, oh, you're in a wheelchair. You're a wheelchair user. How do I talk to you? You just say, hi, I'm Joe. Uh, pleased to meet you. Uh, if you travel far today, great weather, then you start a conversation. Then you can ask questions like, is it okay if I stand while I talk to you? Would you like me to grab a chair and sit next to you? And often they'll say, oh, I'll pull a chair over or, or standing's fine. That's, that's fine. Um, so it's just learning how to have these conversations, how to ask the person you're talking to, how would they like to communicate? Yeah. Uh, and if you both do that to each other, you, you start off with a better conversation. You, you form this middle ground where you're both comfortable and then you can start talking. Uh, and people often say, people fear of getting it wrong, fears in the wrong language. And you say council culture, Oh, we're too woke, we're PC. Oh, it's so complicated these days. Oh, I can't say anything without offending somebody. You hear all these kind of privileged remarks coming out. And it almost negates the lived experience of the person that is being challenged, that finds it awkward in that environment, that finds they're being discriminated or, or suffering microaggressions at every turn. So, yeah, I think, I think it's really important that we, we do evolve a way of, of becoming more receptive to each other yeah. and learning how to communicate in a way where we, we respect each other and we're trying to find common ground. I think this is the, uh, we're, we're going to wrap up now because um, we're, we're rapidly approaching our time limit. Um, and I think it kind of, it, you, you've really kind of hit the nail on the head there in terms of that communication and that, um, I guess the intention, the genuine intention to understand is where the difference is made. If you genuinely care about learning if you genuinely care about um addressing your blind spots then the fear dissipates a little bit because you know that if you're like look i don't know how to talk about this stuff because it's not something i've experienced i'd love for you to kind of to help me with that and help me understand so i so so that i can have these conversations more effectively then most people are really really willing to to chat about their experiences and things like that and if you're genuine and you're still met with 
hostility, then you can at least go, okay, well, I, you know, I, I'm not sure what's going on for that person, but I, I came from a place of genuine um, intent. Uh, mm. Whereas, I mean, you said at this, you said when we were talking about um, uh, representation in the media that you hear a lot of stuff, but you don't see a lot of stuff, and it's the same with that, isn't it? Re- really, with the diversity and inclusion, you hear mm. a lot of people using it as a buzzword, and a lot of people using it as, "Hey, this is what we're doing," because they want to look a certain way. It's very much about posturing, um, mm. but really, it comes down to the intent and the genuine intent of of um, of that understanding is is so so powerful. Um, in terms of kind of closing off then, like, I mean, we've covered, I think there's been so much stuff in here which is actionable, so much stuff here which people either on an individual level or in positions of leadership can really uh, can really use. But if there was someone listening to this, for example, who is in a position of leadership and they want to address diversity and inclusion from a kind of, uh, you know, linked to the well-being thing, because it does all go hand in hand, where you go, I want to help my my people be well physically and mentally and therefore being inclusive is a huge part of that where would you suggest would be a good place for them to start and then for an individual who wants to uh, improve their own quality of life and and feel more well um, where would you say would be a good starting point for them in your experience so from from a leadership point of view i think you were touching on just then is that coming from a place of of well-meaning, good intent. And I think the only way you can get to that point is finding the why. Why did it really matter to you around to, to be more inclusive, to be more diverse, to, to create the culture? Once you can understand the why you're doing it, that allows you to become authentic. That allows you to align, align that intent with your actions and that good intent because you understand why you're doing it you're not just being performative you're not just trying to be salesy or marketing or sell something or whatever it may be you're doing it for genuine personal reasons then i'd say the second from that once you understand why you want to be more inclusive is to talk to people understand what barriers they face in the workplace in accessing something um what benefits what remuneration what are their challenges why doesn't what we've got work for you what would work better for you so really open coaching type questions and then so you've got great intent and you're engaging with people and asking what could be done differently so i think that's the kind of core core of an inclusive leader is adapting your thinking style adapting your motivations and recognizing that people seek other things not just what you look for and finding out about that. And then that, that, so that's adapting your style as a leader with good intent, with the right motivations, being authentic and being interested in people. So that's why I say uh, from a leadership perspective, from a personal perspective, again, I, I come back to the why, why does it matter to me? Why do I want to do this? What do I want to achieve something? Am I achieving it for my goals or am I doing it because I'm told these are the goals I should aspire to? Because I think we all we all recognize that we're more likely to achieve what matters to me, what my goals are, or why it matters, once I own those goals, wherever they may be. And the goal may not be, maybe do nothing. That's fine. And I think then embark in a sustainable change. And I said, the first thing I said was, we can't go from 60 miles forward to 60 miles backwards today. Yeah. We have to go through 60, 40, 20, zero, 
before we start going down. So don't look at it as a, a reversal. We've got to stop and reverse. We've got to start in a sustainable, managed way and look at look at getting to a, a stable point first before we worry about going backwards or going losing. I think that's what we've got to try and think about is is sustainability and motivation and basing around our own goals. And then being realistic and tracking those goals and making sure that they're still they're still meaningful as we go forward. Perfect. Absolutely fantastic advice there. And some which I shall be heeding as well. I'm always uh, always up for a good reminder of that stuff. Um, but yeah, that reflection on whether you're, whether those goals are still important to you because it will change as, as life changes, won't it? So what's important to us now might not be important to us in five years. So uh, mm. yeah, we need to stay reflecting on that. Joanne, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on for a chat today. Uh, it's 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 been absolutely wonderful. So I'm really 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 appreciative of that, um, and I hopefully I will chat to you again soon. Thanks, uh, uh, Jay. I've really enjoyed it as well. It's been a great open conversation. Uh, we've never spoken before, and we've had a, a really really insightful chat. And I've learned something about you, and, I've, and you, you've learned something about me, which has been amazing. Thank it you. Has, it has. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fit to Lead with me, Jay Unwin. If you're not already connected with me on LinkedIn, come and find me using the link in the podcast description and say hello. If you want me to help you improve the fitness and well-being of your team and of yourself, let's set up a call. Until next time, stay fit, stay well, and keep leading from the front.